Our Heavenly Father, we are humbled to to even have this opportunity to be together and to talk about second last and last Sundays here in this building, to recognize the history that has flowed through this building, shaping the lives of so many. And we look forward to the days to come. We know, Father, thy return is nearing, nearer than it's ever been. And yet, Father, our lives do go on, and we are asked to to trust in thee in the days to come and to make decisions for our lives, even for our church, big decisions that, that look at things that we have to do in, in a trusting manner because we do not know the time and, and the schedule that thou hast for the return of thy son. And so we pray, Father, as we are gathered together, that thy word that we read today and that we meditate upon will be inspired by thy spirit. It will be timely. It will be able to speak to us individually, all of us who are here gathered with all our varied needs and and wants and concerns and thanksgivings, whatever it may be, Father. We know that thy word has to be relevant to us and it must look forward to thy return and how thy return affects the way we live today. Father, bless us now, we ask thee in and be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. With the Lord's help, I'd like to read from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 11. Chapter 11 of Luke, beginning with verse 1. And it came to pass that, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, When ye pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, For we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine in his journey is come to me, and I have nothing to to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed, and I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, Though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, Know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more your heavenly Father 
shall give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him. I have read through verse 13. The Lord is worthy that we bow before him in prayer. Our loving Father in heaven, thou art our God in help in ages past. Thou art our sustainer, thou art our provider, thou art our creator, and thou art also our redeemer. Where can we go, Lord, when thou hast the words of eternal life? Where can we go to seek for refuge, for comfort, for strength, for assurance? It is certainly not in the world, this ever-changing world, this ever-fickle and sinful and corrupt world that brings forth sorrow, that brings forth death, as thy word tells us. Oh Lord, we're so thankful that we can come to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. The one who spoke these very words 2,000 years ago that we read this morning. And what a promise it is that all who seek thee, all who ask and all who knock, that you will reveal yourself to them. And you will answer their prayer. Father in heaven we pray for that faith. As the disciples asked to learn how to pray. How to address the king of creation. What to say, what to ask. For we know Lord the apostles says that many ask but they ask amiss. Because they ask to consume it upon their own lusts. For their own Lusts and not for the glory of God. Father, we pray that as we ask this morning, each and every heart may be open and bare and naked before Thee with whom we have to do. That we would ask with sincerity, that we would ask in humility. That we would ask and be willing to accept and receive whatever it, whatever it may be from Thy throne of grace. For some it may be admonition, reprimand. For some it may be comfort and solace and ointment, healing. And for some it may be the message of salvation. For those that have not yet made that covenant with thee, the living God, in the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank Thee that we have this opportunity this morning to gather together, to hear Thy Word, to sit at Thy feet for learning. For Lord, we know that we are in a safe place when we are hearing Thy Gospel truth. The Gospel of which we ought not be ashamed, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Father, we pray that as a dear brother would speak Thy Word, that it would come forth from thee the living God and that thou would use this vessel of clay for your honour and glory Father we pray for our children downstairs as we hear them sing so beautifully that they would not only sing them in the years of innocence 
But when they come to that age of full knowledge of their state before thee, that they would be able to sing these hymns as hymns of redemption, as hymns of comfort and strength, because they are thine. Father, we know that there are many that are not here this morning because of illness, because of difficulties and, and hardships that they are going through. Thou knowest each and every soul. Lord, your word says that thou knowest them that are thine and how to deliver the godly out of temptation. And Lord, we pray that thou would be with them and be their comfort and strength and visit them through closed doors as thou didst so 2,000 years ago to thy disciples that were in fear and consternation. Father, we pray for the gospel message as it goes forth throughout this world. For we know that it is not only heard within the four walls of this building, but it is being preached throughout the world until the coming of the Son of Man. Father, we pray that it would go forth in its simplicity and its power, and that many hearts would be opened and many hearts would receive the truth which is able to make them free. Father in heaven, we pray for, especially as we have heard this, this morning of the appeal for the school in, the, in, in Brazil, we pray that thou would be with the missionaries throughout this world. We know that there are many being persecuted and many, many are still being killed every day for the name of Christ. And we pray for thy presence with them and, and, and uh, guidance and strengthening and protection. Father, we pray that thou would be with us now, that thy word would go forth this morning hour, that we would open our hearts in meekness to enable the ground to be prepared to receive the seed in meekness mingled with faith, that many more sons may be brought unto glory for thy kingdom's sake. We thank thee, Father, as we commend this service now to thy care and keeping and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It isn't uncommon to ask the question when we are about to meet or be introduced to a person that we do not know, how and what should we say? Especially when we're going to meet or we're going to come into the presence of a group of people that uh, may be in a position, uh, whether it's uh, from a social standing, much different than our own, maybe much higher than our own. And we, are, we want to be careful in the things that we say so that we do not offend, we do not come across the wrong way, and that we do not portray ourselves in a way that is not genuine or truthful. How to communicate to one another and with one another is something that we all deal with on a daily basis. The way we speak, the words we choose, the tone of our voice, the expressions in our face, they all convey a message. And if we're not communicating audibly, and we choose the written form of communication, we have to be ever so careful 
the words we choose, the way we write, because we don't know the condition of the person receiving our message. And what we may consider to be a very simple statement may be completely read out of context, completely misunderstood, simply because of the way the person, the condition or the state of the person receiving the message at the time that the message is sent. And so communication in life has always been a challenge and maintains itself a challenge for us. It's so easy to miscommunicate and to not convey the right message. When the disciples approached Jesus, and this is believed to be the second time that Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. The first time occurs in Matthew during the Beatitudes when he specifically reprimands, reproves the the use of vain repetition by the Pharisees as they prayed to God. And he instructed his disciples that they should not pray that way. And he went on in a little bit more detail than what we find here in Luke about how we ought to pray, how we ought to communicate with God. Now we have to understand as we look at this simple text, and it is very simple, it's, it's very very clear, has a meter to it, it's, you, you don't miss the point. He makes it very clear that when we do pray, we say, our Father which art in heaven, we state a fact. We state where God is, where we are. We make that admission in the beginning of our prayer to God in order to, in many ways, set the context, reminding ourselves, not Him, God doesn't need any reminding, but reminding ourselves of our position with respect to God. Hallowed be thy name. Again, we are identifying the condition of God relative to us, His holiness elevated to the point that even His name is hallowed. And so there already we are instructed to tread carefully. To tread carefully because we are only here on earth. We are approaching a holy God whose name is hallowed, holy, sanctified. We know that even in the Old Testament, the Jews felt that mispronouncing God's name had consequences. And so the Jahweh or Jehovah, the way it's, it's, if you, or even if you see the modern text of the Bible, of the Jewish Bibles today, the Old Testament, sometimes they don't, they, they will omit the, the vowel O in the word God. And they'll just have GD. They are very careful of how to deal with God's name. Now the next few verses that Jesus instructs his disciples, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth, are are again factual, but they now begin to point to the future. They cause us to take focus of the fact that we are now approaching God and have presented ourselves before him. We have understood our, our position before God. And then we make a statement about what is 
and what is to be. That his kingdom is to come and that his will will be done as it is being done now in heaven, so should it be done here on earth. At this point, and I know that many of us, probably all of us at one point in our lives have gone through these verses and we've, some, of them, some of us have memorized them when we th- went through Sunday school. And it's not that God or Jesus Christ here, Jesus Christ is speaking to us that every time we pray to God that we say these things by memory. They are more to represent a structure, a framework, in which we then put our petitions, our requests, our supplications, our prayers. And notice I've used all those different words because different circumstances in our lives require different ways of expressing and communicating to God and with one another. We have that within our own lives, the way we interact. Sometimes we're in a dire situation where we need to make we need to make a command to to our our fellow friend, colleague, worker, spouse, uh, sibling, because we need a, spe- a specific task to be done, and time is of urgency. Time is real, a real urgency, and it's a matter of seconds when we need someone to respond. And sometimes we come under different circumstances, where the tone of our voice, the humility expressed and the the sense of of where we are relative to the person we are addressing comes across in the way we speak and so it is with God so this is really just a framework it's like a building when you go through the, on, along the highway or along the road and you see a construction site an industrial commercial instru- construction site and they're erecting a steel building steel structure building and all you see is the structural frame <coughs> But they're going to hang things on that frame. They're going to hang the. They're going to place the floor, the deck, the concrete deck. They're going to put the precast on the outside, the windows. That frame will hold all the rest of the building materials. And so is this prayer. It is a framework to help guide us in the way we speak to God. That will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. That statement is is a very all-encompassing statement that has so many different dimensions. We all agree that God is sovereign and totally in control of earth. And he's in control, he's ultimately in control of the affairs of man, even though from, 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 the, from our perspective, we think that man is in control and the things that are happening in this world are a direct consequence of man's, man's desire to fulfill his will. But, but to the natural man, to the person who has not spent time in God's word and is not familiar with God's word, that person may not understand that in fact God, though he may seem absent from the scene, in fact is very much directing the way things are going. And in, in many ways... Just as a simple example, you've heard the expression recently about the Arab Spring. All the uprisings that have hit North Africa in the, in, in the pursuit of ousting dictators that have been there for decades, 30, 40, 50 years. 
what we do not see, perhaps, or maybe we don't, we do, is that what's changing is that now we have a dictatorship throughout North Africa that is being replaced by um, political parties that are affiliated with um, religious beliefs. The Islamic Brotherhood, for one. And all you have to do is read Ezekiel and Isaiah, and you read the, end, the, the picture of the end times, and it talks about Libya, and it talks about uh, Kush, talks about Egypt, who will be, you know, heading together with a confederacy of a northern army to attack Israel, and you have to say, well, you know, that's very believable now. You can see that happening, and and the world may see democracy winning over, but in fact, what we see is things accelerating towards a a fulfillment of God's plan. That will be done. You, you and I can stand back and say God's will is being done. God's will will be done on earth, and God makes it happen. But that's not really what God is saying here to us. He wants us. That's taking what we call in the corporate world the thirty thousand foot perspective. When you're flying up in the plane and you look down and. And in the business world, they want you to have that 30,000 foot perspective. They want you to see that big picture far, have a big horizon. But that's not what God wants us. In fact, He doesn't want us to have that perspective. He wants us to have the perspective that His will is being done today, right now, this minute, in me. He doesn't even want me to be concerned with my neighbor to the left or to the right. He doesn't want me to be concerned about how, not even necessarily how my brother or sister are fulfilling God's will. His primary first concern he wants me to be concerned with is how am I fulfilling God's will? How is my life going to have His will fulfilled here on earth as it is in heaven? And so now, the question of how, the imperative, how am I going to make that happen, His home. And now I am parachuting from a 30,000 foot perspective down to earth, to a 5 foot 8 perspective. Where I'm looking down and I see my toes and I see myself. I am, thy will be done. That means me. Me. And it is sobering because at this point God gives us no other, no other insight into that command. It is, it is a subtle, implied command. You are going to fulfill my will. You. Then he brings us and shifts us to the things that we have need of. We have need of, physically, we are on this earth. And notice that Luke, through the inspiration, or through, through the writing of what he has heard, Jesus Christ tells his disciples... He, and, he's, and he's told us that in another chapter in Matthew, that, that God takes care of us in so many ways. But here, he lumps it all together. And if I were to ask each of you individually, what is your need today? What is your, your need? And that need could be material, it could be uh, emotional, it could be uh, financial, it could be whatever your need is. It could be spiritual. There, there is a need. And here he says, give us day by day. 
Day by day, give us our daily bread. Now, our daily bread. And you and I can look at that statement any way we want. We, we have a, pers- uh, a concept in our mind as far as what is our daily bread. What should be our daily bread? And, and God here, in many ways, is asking us to stand back and realize that day by day, our needs are changing, and God knows that. And while we have, an, we have this, this perception of what our needs are, God knows what they are. And when he says our daily bread, he really means that which is meat for you to receive today. In other words, God knows what our needs are and he's going to provide what that portion that we should be receiving. That portion. And, and if we were to read in Matthew, Matthew 6, which talks about the same, this same um, scripture, that our daily bread or that portion allotted to us really is almost as if the, the imagery is when you go to work and you sign a contract with your employer or you agree to work for, for a certain hourly rate and you get paid your hourly rate, that's the portion allotted to you because that was what was identified for you. And in this way, God has identified for us our daily bread. And he, He's asking us to, to pray that we receive that portion which he has identified for us. As opposed to us telling him, this is the portion that we feel we need to have today. And that's very different. It's very different. Lastly, he goes on to say, he's, he's brought attention to who he is. He's, he's reminded us that we are addressing a holy God whose name is holy, that we, we have been reminded that his will is to be done, and it's to be done by us, and that we should ask for the allotted portion of our needs to be given to us day by day, that that is a, 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 a um, worthwhile and justifiable request. And then he speaks to us about our sins. He says that we should pray that, that forgive us our sins. Now, you may say, well, maybe we should be asking that right away. Maybe if there is sin in our lives, and the Bible tells us, it gives us an example in the, in the, in the, uh, the epistles, that, when, that, that our prayers can be hindered by sin in our life. That not only our prayers, obviously, but if our prayers are hindered, which is our communication line with God, so much more is suffering because of sin in our lives. But here he says, after we've done this, after we've requested for, for that we should receive our allotted portion, he says that we should pray for forgiveness for our sins. On, on the basis, on the basis that for, which means because, because we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. Or in other words, 
we should forgive those who trespass against us, those who offend us, those who, 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 who for whatever reason or another we feel have crossed a boundary in our life and have violated us, violated our, our, our respect, our, our, our privacy, our, our, uh, our honor, our, um, our physical being, whatever it is, we feel that somebody has trespassed. And we know we read that from Matthew. You know, if, if, if anyone has trespassed against you, you know, go and speak to him. And here, Jesus is saying, asking that we forgive. We ask God to forgive our sins as we also have forgiven others. Not that God needs to be reminded. We don't need to remind God of anything. But it's really to remind us. And we know, we've heard this before, that many times when we pray, we, we are, when we have a need, we are compelled to communicate with God, to pray. Because many times, unfortunately, we see Him as a last resort. And we come to Him and we come prepared to to unload the things that are bothering us and the things and the things that are preoccupying our mind and our emotional energy and and we we then come to him asking for that help and many times if we spend enough time in that position in prayer we find that he actually speaks to us and he and he speaks to the fears the concerns and the things that we carry in our mind and, and he sort of retunes it like an electronic device, just retunes it so that we, we once again have the proper perspective. And in many ways, this structure here is helping us to have that proper perspective in our lives. Lastly, he says here, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In most of the manuscripts, the last portion that, but deliver us from evil, is not included. Scholars believe it was added on to Luke because it matches what is written in Matthew 6. But really, Luke ends, if you would accept that, Luke ends with basically, and lead us not into temptation. Does God lead you into temptation? Do we have an example in the New Testament where God led anyone into temptation? And I'm not speaking here that we should try to rationalize the word temptation and call it test or trials. Temptation. And we know that in the case of Jesus, he was led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be, to be tempted and tested of the devil. Now Jesus, you and I are not Jesus, and we certainly are not driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to experience 40 days and 40 nights without food and to be ministered by angels, and to have temptations in, in a manner that Jesus had. None of us have had that. Perhaps some of us may have been tempted with significant wealth, but it certainly was in the world, and, the, it's, and its empires flashed before our eyes with the temptation that all this could be yours. We may be tempted that some of this can be yours, and some of us may, may, may find that a very strong temptation. Some of us may be tempted to do something extremely daring, taking the liberty and the presumption that God is going to, to take care of us. We may be reckless 
We may be reckless with our financial management. We may be reckless with our health. Thinking that God is, is, the, is the giver of life and he, he cares for me and He's going to take care of me regardless of my situation, regardless of the choices I make. But we haven't been taken to the pinnacle of the temple and asked to jump. But some of us have been asked to jump a little bit. The temptation has been there. God allows tests that can be temptations. And if we are not careful with our lives, we can lead ourselves into situations where Satan can tempt us. And each of us, there is no doubt about it, there is no doubt about it. It is emphatically 100% true. Each of us, Satan knows, and he can tempt us the way he wants, because he knows, he knows what we are susceptible to. And that's why we have to have that constant tuning that we are careful. Now we read about the example here. Jesus, if we would have stopped at verse 4, and I know that I often say this in the pulpit, if we would have stopped at verse 4, and I say that because sometimes I stop when I'm meditating on something and I stop, I get caught by something, a thought that has come to my mind and I don't read the rest. I sort of focus on that thought. But if we would have stopped at verse 4, we would have, we may have walked away, not that this ver- these verses, verses 2, 3, and 4, were not sufficient to give us direction about how we address God. But we would have, give, we would have had a very, a very simple and non-descriptive, if I can use those terms, non-descriptive way of communicating with God. There isn't a lot of adjectives and adverbs here. There isn't a lot of emotional back and forth in, in what we read here. It's simply, if this is the only way you communicate with God, it's very dry, cold. It's very mechanical. And if, and if that is the impression we are getting, and for perhaps many people on this earth who only learned that this is how you communicate with God because they were made to memorize this, this prayer in Sunday school and that's how they pray in the, in, in the supper table or whatever it is, it's, it, it falls short of communicating what God wants from us. And the, the, So Jesus goes on to describe a parable. And he talks about this friend who has a, has a visitor come, unexpectedly perhaps, at probably at a, at a difficult time, and the, the, the person who has his visitor isn't prepared for the visitor, is caught unprepared, and doesn't have enough to, to supply for the needs of, the, of his visitors. And in, and in that culture, we know that in that culture, the, even today in the Middle Eastern culture, hosting people is very important. It's, it's, it's an honorable thing to do. And we find that in this parable, and everyone that was listening to this could understand that I have a host, I have, I have a visitor come, I'm hosting a visitor unexpectedly, I'm short of supplies, I need, I need some supplies, I need some bread, I need some food to, to be able to meet. In this case, I need three loaves, 
So we're not talking about a, a, a small company. We're not talking about one person. We're talking about en- enough people unexpectedly arrive at your house and your freezer is not, uh, not ready, is not stocked with enough food to be able to meet their needs. And in this case, the friend goes to his neighbor. And that, is, that, that wouldn't be unheard of. But his neighbor is sleeping. It's late at night. And we know um, that probably the whole family was sleeping together. That's just the way the culture was until, until you had enough money to build your own little addition to your father's house and bring your wife in. But when you did that and you had your family, it would all be one room. So this, isn't, this is not hard for us to fathom. That, that if someone comes in the middle of the night knocking on your door, you don't want to get up and have to wake everybody up because they're all in one room. So it is, it is, a, dis, it is a discomfort. It is, it is an inconvenience. And many times we read this. It says, I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as much as he needed. Now, we've often read this and said, because of his persistence, this is also parallel with Luke 18 about the unjust judge where the widow wanted to, to come to him so she would be avenged of, of those who wronged her, you know, and say, because of her persistence, then we draw the same parallel. But the word importunity, firstly, does not mean persistence. It means shamelessness. And it is, it is the picture that we're trying to that Jesus is trying to paint here is that there are times in your life when you are short of three loaves of bread. You are short of some of the the necessities in life, not only for yourself, but for those who all of a sudden have come into your life and you are in need. And God wants us to approach Him and the, 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 the... parable is not simply to teach us that if we are persistent enough, God will answer our prayers. Because if we read the rest, which we will, that clearly says that that's not necessarily the case. The case here is that God wants us to have an attitude without shame to approach Him, even in those basic necessities of our lives. It's because of, it's because of His friend's shamelessness that He continued to knock on the door and wake his friend up. Because he was in a situation, and you know you've met that. I have come across people in the Middle East, in, in, in my former employer's uh, place of work, where I have, where, you know, they behave a certain way or they act a certain way, and it's their custom and their culture, where you realize, wow, they have no shame in saying that or behaving that way. They don't see it that way. And, and in this case, it's, it's this... This idea that when we are in need, we have to come to God firstly to deal with our pride. It's interestingly enough, if this neighbor was proud, the one in need, he would not have gone and bothered his neighbor. It would have been it would have been shameful for him to do that. But he did. And that is part of the picture Jesus is saying that, you know what, I don't want you to learn this this prayer in a mechanical way, that if you do that, there is something missing. Part of it is your heart and your situation. I want you to recognize that when you come to me, you come to me completely transparent. You come to me 
where I know precisely what your needs are. Um, this reminds me, in, in Proverbs, there's a, there's a, a very um, popular Proverbs that we've, we've often quoted before. Two things have I required of thee. This is in Proverbs 30. Two things have I required of thee. Deny me them not before I die. This is the writer speaking. It says, Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me or appropriate for me, allotted for me. Okay? Lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Now this is really interesting because lest I be full... So if you give me, if you give me um, riches, I could become full, and I can deny thee and say, "Who is the Lord?" Now the word "deny thee" or the expression "deny thee" really means to act deceitfully by saying, "Who is the Lord?" In other words, on the surface we can give the image that we have no need. We can give the, the impression to our fellow man that we don't have a need and we are behaving in, and acting in a deceitful way. So even though we're saying, who is the Lord? In other words, what does he have to do with my circumstances? Clearly, it is my hard work, my perseverance, my, my talents, my abilities... That, that have got me to where I am. But what the writer is saying here is that deep down, even the person that says that knows that God is the one that has made it happen. And that by making the statement as if to deny who is God, who is the Lord, we are acting in a deceitful way and God knows our deceit. God knows the pride in us. And again, it's this whole issue of transparency. It's this whole issue of transparency. Jesus then says, Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and and it shall be opened unto you. Now, I submit to you that verse 9 would mean nothing to anyone here unless they are transparent before God and themselves. They are empty words. Unless you see yourself like the man who has a need for three loaves and is willing to humble himself and have no shame, Unless we understand who we really are and recognize that we really do have needs. And it's not just when we are seeking God to become a Christian. Many times in my past, I've always associated verse 9 with simply, well, this is something we experience during conversion. This is a pivotal verse during conversion because I need to ask, I need to seek, and I, need to, and I need to knock, because that shows my perseverance, that shows my desire to become a Christian. But it's not only that. 
It's throughout our lives. And God orchestrates it in such a way that that you come to a point, like I come to a point in our lives today, where, where God is asking us to ask. We do have needs. We don't want to act deceitfully as if who is the Lord. Not that any of us would ask that question, but our actions may give that impression because we are so self-sufficient. And God is saying, ask. In fact, you need to ask because you are in need. You are in need of three loaves. You are in need of a lot of things. And I'm saying to myself, seek and knock. Knock, what, what do we normally knock on? We knock on the door. We're asking God to open the door. We're asking God to open doors in our lives that currently we see as shut. That we acknowledge are there. And we're asking Him to open them. Who here doesn't need a door to be opened today? in your life. So, because if you do these things, it says, everyone that asks will receive. And everyone that seeks will find. And he that will knock, it will be opened unto him. The door will be open. And it's not about, oh, you have to persistently seek that. No, it's the message was not only persistence but it's the state of your asking, the state of your seeking, the state of your knocking, the state of your heart. Recognizing, first, recognizing that you have need for three loaves. And if we always focus on persistence in this parable and miss out the fact, the fact that precipitated the situation was the lack of three loaves. We are destitute. And that's what God is saying. That if we look deep down in our lives, we have tremendous needs. If we are not converted, the need is to make right with God. If we are converted, we are still in need of Him to open doors for us, to, to provide for us, and to have us interact with Him in a way that we recognize that we are totally dependent on Him. Because, because we are charged with doing His will on earth. Not my neighbor to the left or the right. I am charged with doing His will. And that alone puts me in a position of need. Of need. 